invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. This morning we continue our study of the gospel of Mark, which we've been doing mostly in the evenings. Return to Mark and chapter 14 as we near the end of Mark's gospel. the night of Jesus' betrayal. It's Thursday evening, and he's in Jerusalem with his disciples. They're sharing a private meal. It's a Passover meal. And we've already seen the preparations for that meal at the beginning, or there in the middle of chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. And we were looking last time at the institution of the Lord's Supper, which was in the context of this Passover meal. And we considered the bread, and we're going to focus on the cup this time. I'm going to read verses 22 to 25 of Mark 14. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's ask again for the Lord's blessing and his help as we open up his word. Again, Father, we do feel our weakness and our inability to understand the truths of your word without your help, without your illumination, without the working of your spirit in us. So we ask that you would come and meet with us now by your word and spirit and give us understanding Give us even energy and ability to focus upon your word and upon the Savior. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When God made the animals, he gave many of them a circulatory system. And of course, he gave that to us as well. And the basic parts of this system are the pump, which we call the heart. Then you have the blood, and what we might call intricate duct work or blood vessels, the arteries and the veins and the capillaries and so forth, a circulatory system which has been designed by God in his wisdom. Now, this system, of course, is absolutely vital. If the heart stops, if the blood is poured out of the arteries and the veins, then life ends. It's a vital system. This simple fact, in fact, was the basis for the Old Testament prohibition against eating flesh, the flesh of animals, with the blood still in it. They were required first to drain the blood. Deuteronomy 12, 23 says, only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. The blood is the life. Now, as far as we know, the first shedding of blood ever 
was not when Cain murdered Abel in Genesis chapter 4. But it was the shedding of animal blood when God graciously provided for Adam and Eve who had sinned against him in taking the forbidden fruit when God graciously provided for them skins. That's animal skins. And that's in Genesis 3.21. For Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and he clothed them. In order to get these skins, what was required was that the animals had to be killed, that they were slain so that they could be then covered. They had made their own coverings of the fig leaves, but God provides them with these new coverings. And these animals are slain in order to do so. Now, as such, this being the case, many would regard this bloodshed as the first sacrifice the first sacrifice that was made. So that as soon as sin entered the world, there was sacrifice. There was death, and then there was sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrificial system, its fuller development came later. We know that there were sacrifices early on, but the full system came later with its four main types of blood sacrifices, depending on how you would count them up could be six if you count them differently, three types of free will offerings, but there are four main types of blood sacrifice in the Old Testament sacrificial system. That came later after God had delivered his people out of Egypt, and you have it there spelled out in detail in Leviticus. Now, if you fast forward to Jesus' day, Here at the time, as we're reading in Mark 14, in his day, that sacrificial system and all of these different blood sacrifices, this was still central to the worship of the Jewish people. They still had the temple. They still had priests. They were offering up these sacrifices. These things were everyday things for them. So the disciples of Jesus, we have to understand, were very well acquainted with blood sacrifices and the significance of the blood sacrifices. And we need to keep this in mind as we return to this upper room in Jerusalem on the night in which Jesus is betrayed. And as they're eating this Passover meal together and as Jesus gives to them this new and better supper. In the context of this Passover meal, Jesus takes the bread And he takes the cup and he speaks words to them. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to focus on verses 23 and 24 in which Jesus gives them the cup and he speaks in regard to the significance of this cup. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many or which is poured out for many. Notice that just as Jesus took the bread, he now takes the cup. Same verb is used. He takes the cup, and this was a cup of wine mixed with water. That was the custom in that day. And just as he blessed the bread, we read there that here that he gave thanks for the cup. And that's a word that we get Eucharist from. He gave thanks for the cup and obviously the contents of the cup. 
And just like the broken bread, we read here that he gives the cup to his disciples. And then we're told that they all drink from it, this shared cup of the wine. And then comes the explanation there in verse 24. And it's parallel to the explanation given about the bread. Jesus had said, take this bread. He says, this is my body. And notice when he explains about the blood, he says, this is my blood. And not, as I mentioned last week, not that the wine, the substance of the wine is changed into the substance of the blood of Christ, or that somehow... It's actually the blood of Christ in and under the wine. With these words here, what Jesus is doing, just as he was doing with the bread, is holding out the cup and the wine as a symbol, as a symbol, as a sign of his blood. And yet, just to state again without going into it, it's symbolic. But we do believe that in the supper, when we take by faith, that Christ is really present to us spiritually. So our confession states the body and blood of Christ are spiritually present to the faith of believers. So you see the balance in this text with the cup and with the bread very much given to us in the same language. But you'll probably notice something different just by looking at the explanation here given of the cup. And that is that there's expansion. Jesus says a little bit more about the key significance of the cup. He doesn't just say, this is my blood, but he goes on to say, this is my blood of the new covenant. And then he says, it's not just my blood of the new covenant, but it's the blood that is shed. And more literally, it is being poured out. This is my blood, which is being poured out. And then he adds that detail for many. For many. And each of these details is highly significant. Each of these details is worthy of our meditation, our careful thought, our reflection. And my burden here this morning, as last week, is to ask the question and at least seek to begin to answer what does this tell us about the person of Christ and about the work of Christ? his person and his redeeming work. The cup, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Now, as we saw with the bread or the body of Christ, the wine or the blood of Christ does remind us of the true humanity of Christ, that though God, he is also Truly man, he took to himself a true body with real human flesh and blood. The word of God, the eternal word of God became flesh, as John tells us, John chapter 1. He took upon himself a circulatory system. He shared in our flesh and blood. He's truly God. He's truly man. So this again reminds us of that. I'm not going to elaborate on it, but it is something that we think about as we take these elements or we ought to think about. He has flesh and blood like us. And there's real blood that will be poured out for us. But here's the first main thing that I want us to see as we're thinking about the person and the work of Christ 
in relation to the cup and what he's saying here, the actions and the words of Jesus. And that is that in giving the wine to drink as the symbol of his blood, which is shed, he wants his disciples and he wants us to understand and remember his death as sacrifice. So in doing this, he wants us to understand and to remember his death as sacrifice. Now the Bible sets forth the atoning work of Christ in a variety, a rich variety of language. So we have, for example, redemption. We were just singing even about redemption or our ransom. Earlier in Mark, in Mark 10, 45, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus understood his work as a work of ransom or as a work of redeeming. And the idea of redemption is the setting free of a captive, somebody who is in bondage by the payment of a price, a ransom price. And in this case, it's us as sinners who are in bondage because of our sin. And it's Christ who's paying the ransom, which is his own precious blood. We are redeemed through the blood of Christ, the scriptures say. So this is one of the ways that the Bible speaks of the atoning work of Christ. But we also have propitiation. In Romans 3.25, God set forth Christ, Paul says, as a propitiation by his blood. And then very clearly again in Hebrews 2.17, the writer there speaks of Christ making propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, what does that mean? It's a rich word. We find it more in the Old Testament. If not the word, certainly the idea, but propitiation has to do with the wrath of God. So the atoning work of Christ, the sacrifice, the offering of Christ is put in these terms of propitiation, which means that his sacrifice satisfies the wrath of God against us for our sins. We've sinned against God. He's angry against us, rightly so, because of sin. And propitiation means that his, his wrath is satisfied. It's appeased. It's removed by this offering of Christ. Reconciliation. We need to be reconciled to God. Why? Because we're alienated from God. Why are we alienated from God? Very clearly because our sin. There's a separation. But the work of Christ... His atoning work was a work of reconciliation to bring us back to God. We are reconciled to God through the death of his son, Romans 5.10. So not only is his wrath removed, propitiation, but we're also restored to his favor. We're no longer alienated and separated from God because of what Christ has done for us. Now you could put all of this in a larger category of obedience. That's the umbrella that all of this falls under. Christ himself understood his work in all of these ways we've just looked at, but also basically as a work of obedience. He knew why he had come into the world. He knew that his father had sent him. And he said in multiple places that he had come to do the will of his father. In John 6, 38, he says very plainly, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in Philippians chapter 2, 
we read that he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So that's the umbrella, the obedience. And then we have all this rich language that the Bible uses to describe the atoning work of Christ. Well, here, with the institution of the supper, Jesus, just before his own death, wants his disciples in particular to think of his death in terms of a sacrifice. And all of these things go together. There's overlap between all of this. And it shows the glory and the wonder of our salvation. It shows us how great our need is and how varied our need is and how God has met that need perfectly in sending Christ. But he lays it out here as a sacrifice. We might easily miss this. Maybe not, but we could read this and not hear it as the disciples would have heard it. They would not have missed the significance here. They would not have failed to appreciate what Jesus is saying when he's speaking of his blood and his blood being poured out. They would have understood he is giving his life as a sacrifice, just as the blood of bulls and goats and lambs Sometimes doves are poured out upon the altar for sins. The sacrificial language is even stronger in Matthew. Matthew adds, given, poured out for many for the remission of sins. For the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. So very clearly, it's sacrifice. So you see that here? I know it's simple, but we need to understand it's sacrifice in particular that Jesus wants us to think about. So that's what we're going to think about this morning. We're going to meditate upon this and what we find in particular in these words that can help us to better understand and appreciate the work of Christ for sinners. The idea of blood sacrifice and offering is brought to our attention with the cup of the Lord's Supper. So when Jesus said, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, he meant that we should remember him as offering himself as a sacrifice of pouring out his blood. Now, all of this was loaded with significance for these disciples who were practicing Jews, who had gone to the temple, who had offered up many sacrifices, blood sacrifices, they're even in Jerusalem now. Remember the context of the Passover. They have, they've offered the lamb and the lamb has been slain. It's been sacrificed. They know about the duties of the priests and all of the rituals in ways that we don't. We can study this and it's important to do it. But they just understood these things because this was part and parcel with their religious life. So the great challenge for us, not just in a text like this, but really anytime we read the scriptures is as best we can to try to hear the words of Scripture as the original hearers would have heard them. And that takes some work. We need to appreciate here what they would have understood. So we need to know the Bible. We need to not think lightly about reading and studying the Old Testament. We need to give ourselves to studying the Old Testament. But when we do that, we need to 
understand that the New Testament is a clearer and fuller revelation, and we need to read the Old Testament in light of it. So we have here an encouragement. We impoverish ourselves if we don't understand the Old Testament background to the New Testament. It all goes together as God's word, and we need to understand it. So we need to give ourselves to read these things, say the the book of Leviticus, but you could master the book of Leviticus. You could know all about the sacrifices. You could know everything the priests were to do, and you could not really understand their significance, as many people in Jesus' day did not. They didn't see Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is where the book of Hebrews is so valuable and it's so helpful. I'm thankful that we're working through this. And this is a book that can really unlock the scriptures for us if we can understand it, giving us the key to understanding the priesthood, the earthly sanctuary, all of the sacrifices, which can be so tedious even now as we're thinking about it and talking about it. But it all points to Christ. It all points to his priesthood, it points to his sacrifice. It all points to something, someone far better. And remember the writer saying, don't go back to that. Someone better has come who has offered a better sacrifice. He is our great high priest. You need no other. You should not go back. That's what he's saying. So it's helpful for us to be studying and giving our minds to a book like Hebrews. We just sang that not all the blood of beasts of Jewish altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Not all the blood of beasts, but only the blood of Christ could atone for sins. Let's think about this a little bit more. The Old Testament idea of sacrifice. What would have come to the disciples' minds? The idea clearly in their minds would have been that sacrifice has to do with sin and guilt. I think we all probably would almost instinctively think of that. Sacrifice on a basic level has to do with man's sin and guilt. It needs to be dealt with. The sin needs to be covered. The guilt needs to be removed. God's wrath needs to be turned away from the sinner. So the animal was presented by the Old Testament worshiper. And you know what was usually done as they bring this animal. In fact, we also sung about this. It was alluded to at least in the song, but the hands were placed on the head of the animal. It was symbolic. A symbolic transfer of sin and of guilt. It's the idea of imputation, of crediting to someone else's account the sin and the guilt. And then that animal is slain. Its blood is poured out. It it suffers the death penalty that the sinner deserves because of his sin. So you see how that's a powerful picture of the gospel. We need to understand that. So it's helpful to see this and and how the hands would have been put 
upon the animal. The sin of the offerer, one man says, was imputed to the offering, and the offering bore, as a result, the death penalty. And this was all done again and again and again and again, generation after generation, by God's chosen people. So clearly, this was not God's final solution. This wasn't his ultimate provision for our sin. And giving the cup to his disciples and saying to them, this is my blood, blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. He's saying, I am the ultimate solution. I am God's final provision for your sin and your guilt and the sin and the guilt of all who believed under the old covenant who were able to offer sacrifices of bulls and goats but didn't get to behold the Lamb of God with their own eyes. They could never take away sins. We read that in Hebrews 10, blood of bulls and goats. God never gave bulls and goats and said, sacrifice these things because they could take away sins. That was never the case. From the beginning, they pointed forward to one whose blood would be poured out on the ground at the foot of a Roman cross. Jesus pouring out his lifeblood for sinners. And it's only by this one sacrifice, final sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice that anyone, past, present, or future can come to God, can have their sins forgiven. How were, how were believers saved in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant? People ask that quite frequently. It's by the blood of Christ. It wasn't by bulls, wasn't by goats, wasn't by their blood. It's by the blood of Christ. And looking to that, even though for them it was far off. And now we have this great privilege of seeing more clearly. What about your sin? As you're hearing this, you've heard it before, I'm sure. What about your sin? If you're not a believer, what are you going to do with your sin? How will you stand before God? You have sin, you have iniquity, you have transgression, you have offended a righteous and holy God. You need a sacrifice. You need a covering. You need your sins placed on another who can then pay the death penalty for you. And Christ is saying very clearly, I am that lamb, I am that perfect sacrifice. I am the one who can pay the penalty for sinners. So that's, that's the first thing here. It's sacrifice. And Jesus wants us to see his death as a sacrifice. But I want to consider more closely, secondly here, that Jesus speaks of his death not just in terms of a sacrifice, but a vicarious sacrifice. So not just sacrifice, but vicarious, and that means in the place of others. Look at the language again that he's, that he's using. He says specifically, it's for many. This is my blood which is being poured out for many. Not just for their benefit, but in the place of them as a substitute for them. That is what Jesus is saying. We've already considered how the idea of substitution was fundamental to the Old Testament idea of sacrifice with the offerer's hand placed on the animal's head. 
We are those ones who deserve the death penalty. And why is that? Because the wages of sin is death. It's death. But the good news is found in the fact that we do not need to pay the penalty, but there is another who has paid it for us in our place. And that's Christ. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 6, 23. And we step back as we think about this. What should we think about as we think about Christ as a sacrifice for us? Should we not marvel at our salvation? Think about it. I know it's hard. I know we have an enemy. I know there's remaining sin that keeps us from fully appreciating what our sin deserves and what God has done to meet our greatest need on account of our sin. We're not right with God and we deserve death. But we need to meditate upon this. We have such a great salvation and a savior who has borne our shame and our scoffing as we sing. In my place condemned he stood. In my place sealed my pardon with his blood. And we're not going to fully appreciate that until we are perfected in holiness. But now Jesus has given us this supper And one major part of that is to help us to see the glory of our salvation and to thank God that we have such a savior and such a salvation. Now, this language of for many, we saw that in chapter 10 when I mentioned he said, I'm giving my life as a ransom for many. I think this is a deliberate echo of one of the clearest Old Testament texts that speak of the death of Christ. So clear that if you didn't know it were in the Old Testament, you might think it were in the New Testament, maybe in one of the Gospels. And that's in Isaiah 53, that glorious prophecy of the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant of the Lord. And I want us to hear these words from Isaiah 53 with the words of Jesus fresh in our minds when he says, for many, my blood poured out for many. You can just listen and you could turn there if you like. I'm going to read beginning at Isaiah 53, verse 4. Reading of the suffering servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, substitution. He was bruised for our iniquities, substitution. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. 
Not for his own, he had no transgressions, but for the transgressions of my people, says the Lord, he was stricken. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. His blood poured out for many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. Look at that language even of poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. I think we're meant to remember those words and to reflect upon the suffering servant when we take the cup and consider this is my blood, which is being poured out for many. But I want us to look thirdly and finally here at another aspect of this, and we cannot fail to consider that Jesus speaks of his death not just as a sacrifice, And not just as a sacrifice for many, a vicarious sacrifice in the place of others for the benefit of others. But we need to also see and appreciate it as a covenantal sacrifice. He says it's covenant blood that I'm pouring out. Look again at the text, verse 24 in particular. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. My blood of the covenant. When you look at Luke 22, the parallel there, we read, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So there's something there that we need to understand, and it's very profound. We're not at all going to plumb the depths. We can introduce this this morning. I think it would be impossible for me to overemphasize the significance, we might say the redemptive historical significance of these words of Jesus. Really, with a single word, Jesus here, we might say drops a bomb in the best possible way as he's speaking. There in that upper room, Nobody knew that this was going on, I'm sure. That was part of the reason. Remember, their preparations are there. And Jesus, the Son of God, is speaking words of far greater significance than I believe we can understand in this life. He would say this, this statement of tremendous magnitude. And the one word that would have shook them would have been that word covenant. His blood is covenant blood. Several years ago, I began a Bible study with my mom, and many of you know that she is with the Lord now. 
But we began a Bible study, a weekly Bible study. And among the different resources that we used was the one that we're making use of, Dust to Glory by R.C. Sproul. And it's an overview of the Bible. And it was a joy for me to see how my mom, who I think had been a believer for quite some time, and yet had never really been shown how all the pieces of, of Scripture fit together, had not seen the big picture, we might say, of Scripture, the, the meta narrative, how it all flows together from Genesis to Revelation. So as we studied this together, and as she was reading her Bible with some of these new things in mind to help her see not just these isolated trees, but the whole forest. It was a joy to see her excitement as she was connecting dots in the word of God. And I think many of you have had the same experience where something is taught to you and you begin to see how it all connects and you, you begin to see better how God's plan to save sinners in Christ is unfolding, even beginning with that little promise in Genesis 3 about the seed of the woman and how it's going to grow and grow and get clearer and clearer until the full revelation of the gospel in the New Testament. So it was exciting to see somebody going through that, especially my mom and, and what, what she was understanding, at least in part, was this idea of covenant. This is one of the key themes, if not the key theme of Scripture. Covenant. One of the main categories. There's several biblical themes or categories that would help you to connect the dots and understand the big picture of Scripture so that you're not reading in the Old Testament and you're completely lost and saying, why, other than this, this piece of paper that says I should read Leviticus chapter 1 this morning, why am I reading this? Why is this here? How do I make sense of this? And one of the key things is covenant. One person says it's the organizing principle of Scripture. And many have said similar things like that. It's the backbone of Scripture. You can't understand the flow of Scripture apart from really understanding covenant. Now, it's not my purpose this morning to lay out the covenant theology of the Bible. That would be a significant task. That would take several sermons in order to do. I'm not even sure I have the capacity to do that. Such a rich doctrine, but it's one we ought to study, one we ought to grow in and appreciate more and more throughout our lives. I want to just simply mention and point out a few things for our meditation as we're looking at these simple words of Jesus when he describes his blood as covenant blood. The first is that we need to understand that a covenant is basically a bond. A bond, something that unites people. A bond. It binds people together, a covenant. It establishes a relationship. We're probably, day-to-day -day life, most familiar with the bond of marriage. A man and a woman enter into covenant together. And in coming together in that covenant commitment of marriage, there's a bond that is formed, a bond between the two of commitment and of love. So covenant, we need to understand very basically, is a bond. But secondly here, 
It pleased God to enter into a covenant with man, with sinners, instead of just wipe them out as he could have done in his righteousness and in his holiness. It pleased him to place himself in covenant relation to sinful men who did not deserve to be bound to him in a relationship of commitment and love. But it pleased God to do that. With his chosen people, declaring to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's very basic covenant language. When you see my God or the Lord our God, you should think of covenant. It's God saying, you're my people. I'm binding myself to you by grace. And I'm your God. That's covenant language. So a covenant is a bond. And God, it pleased him to enter into covenant relation with sinful men. And a third thing here as we're thinking about this is that the old covenant, as it's called, which God's people broke, they didn't keep it. They couldn't keep it. Pastor Jim has been bringing this out in Hebrews chapter 8. The old covenant, which God's people broke, was sealed with blood. It was sealed with covenant blood, the blood of the covenant. And I want us to see this in Exodus 24 because Jesus knows his Bible and he's using this language very specifically. In Exodus chapter 24, you can turn there or you can listen. Exodus 24. And what has just happened? God has led his people out of Egypt. Exodus 20, he's given the Ten Commandments. And before he did that, he said, you are my people. I'm your God. Covenant. But let's read here in Exodus 24, beginning at verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 8. Now he, the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to. To all these words, there's a blood sacrifice and the blood 
sprinkled on the people, on the altar. This is the blood of the covenant that God has made with you. That is in the background of what Jesus is saying when he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for you. So, Covenant is a bond. It pleased God to enter into covenant with men. And we've seen that the old covenant was sealed with blood of the covenant. But we see now very clearly in the words of Jesus that the new and better covenant is sealed with better blood. Christ's blood of the covenant. And God willing, will be able to hear the word preached on these matters in the coming weeks and months as we continue to go through Hebrews 8 and 9. The disciples were meant to catch this and to call to mind the great promise of Jeremiah 31, where God promised a new covenant. He said that there would be days coming when he would enter a new covenant with His people. And what Jesus is saying is that those days have come because he's about to shed his blood, the blood of the covenant. And it's a new covenant, a better covenant, and as we've seen in Hebrews, on better promises with a better mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the significance, just in a nutshell, of what Jesus is saying with this one word, really, the covenant. Shed for many this blood. God's doing something new in and through his son, the mediator of a better covenant. One man puts it this way very starkly. He says that the old covenant could be written in animal blood because it consisted of promise. The New Testament or the New Covenant could be written only in the blood of the Son of God because it conveys the complete fulfillment of the promise, the actual purchase of our redemption. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying something this significant is about to happen, and it's only hours from this meal. He says, and I want you to remember that. The actual purchase of your redemption is about to happen as I lay down my life. So that's the heart of what Jesus wants us to understand and remember here. As we come together and not only take the bread, but as we take the cup in the Lord's Supper. That Christ, the Son of God, poured out his blood for us in our place, taking our penalty, becoming a curse for us, that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be set free from the guilt and the power of sin, that we could come to God through him. And even more than that, that we could be bound to God eternally bound to God, in a covenant of incomprehensible love and grace. That we might be God's people, that he would be our God, even our Father. This is the sinner's only hope. And all sinners are invited to come to Christ, 
who's poured out his blood for many. To come to God through him by faith. We read this in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these glorious truths. And we feel our smallness and inability to grasp even the beginning of the significance that your own son would shed his blood for us, that you would enter into a covenant with us, that sinful as we are, that we could be your people. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for this wonderful salvation. And we pray, write these truths upon our hearts and give us greater and greater understanding of the greatness of our salvation and of our Savior. Pray that each person in here would come to love the Savior, to cling to him, and through him to be bound to you forever. Lord, we ask your blessing upon these things in Jesus' name. Amen.